0: For seven long years, Syria has been at war, a civil war with a death toll now exceeding a half million. More than five million Syrians have fled abroad, and millions more are displaced and homeless within the country. The dynastic dictatorship of Bashar al-Assad almost certainly would have fallen by now had it not been for the intervention of the Islamic Republic of Iran, its Lebanese proxy Hezbollah, and various Iranian-controlled Shia militias comprised of Afghans, Pakistanis, and others. Russian military intervention on behalf of Assad also has played a pivotal role. Lately, Tehran has been building a military capability in Syria and appears to have Israel in the crosshairs. And Israel is responding. How goes the war from here? To find out, I'm joined by FDD research fellow and Levant expert Tony Badron, Matt Brodsky, a senior fellow at the Security Studies Group, and John Shanzer, senior vice president for research at FDD. This is... chaos and carnage taking place in Syria, and has been for a long time, since 2011. I think a lot of people may have forgotten or just don't know how this all got started, how this snowball started and turned into an avalanche. Tony, why don't you catch us all up with the history of of the civil war in Syria?
1: Sure. Um, So Syria's the Syrian revolution took place in the context of the so-called Arab Spring uh, uprisings that took place in Egypt, in Tunisia, and in Libya. Um, and uh, so there was, by 2011, there were stirrings in, in Syria as well, although uh, they were shy at first and nobody thought that they would actually take. But eventually they did. Uh, they started a mass uh, movement of protest, peaceful protest, across uh, the country. It started in the south, in Daraa, near the Jordanian border, and it quickly spread. And uh, by immediately, the Assad regime's reaction was to try to brutally suppress it militarily. Uh, And Hezbollah and the Iranians were there from the beginning. They were there as advisors and snipers and helping out the Syrian military, which was really awful, uh, try to organize itself better. Uh, By 2013, uh, the regime was already losing a lot of territory. And so the Iranians and Hezbollah had already entered the war in full. Uh, to try to recapture areas along the Lebanese border, which were lost and which were critical for the Iranians in order to uh, continue to smuggle uh, weapons to Hezbollah in Lebanon. Uh, Still, they were losing by 2015. However, the Russians intervened. Uh, militarily, which helped really secure the Assad regime's position because it brought overwhelming military power that the um, that the opposition and the Iran- that the opposition could not could not uh, uh, match. Obviously, they, they were able to do so with the Iranians, but not so much with with, with the Russians.
0: There's just a few points I want to add or emphasize, and if anybody disagrees with me, don't be shy about it. One is back in 2011, the initial demonstrations against the Assad regime, which is a dynasty. Assad is the dictator. His father was. So was his grandfather. The first demonstrations were absolutely peaceful. People wanted more rights. It didn't necessarily look like this was going to become a great civil war. But Assad responded to these mostly peaceful demonstrations absolutely brutally. And I think he turned it into a civil war. Important point to make here, Assad is from a minority group, the Alawites. The majority of the country are Sunni. One other point, it was believed, certainly by the Obama administration, that Assad could not win a civil war because he didn't have enough Alawite soldiers, he didn't have enough loyal troops, and everybody said it's just a matter of time. I remember government spokesman quietly telling me, We just have to speak with the Russians and others. We all know Assad's going to fall. Let's do this nicely rather than do it badly. Why didn't that happen? Because of the intervention of Iran, because of the intervention of Hezbollah, because of the intervention of Russia. That's the reason why Assad not only didn't fall, but now appears to be winning. Now, within this whole mess, and again, anybody wants to correct me, go ahead, John, you could have organized a report. You've just come out with a report. You just published it. It's called Controlled Chaos, the Escalation of Conflict Between Israel and Iran in War-Torn Syria. One might say any time in the last seven years, you could have come out with pretty much some report like that, but there's a reason I know, and I want you to explain why you said, no, let's focus in on what's going on right now because it's different and it's important and people need to understand.
2: Sure. Well, uh, the story is that... uh as uh, Hezbollah, as Iran, as the Shia militias began to enter into the Syrian theater, uh, they weren't only fighting against ISIS and uh, Al-Qaeda and the Muslim Brotherhood and other uh, Sunni jihadist forces. They were also building up their own capabilities to target Israel. Uh, In some cases, weapons uh, made their way from uh, Syria under the fog of war into Lebanon in order to uh, continue to arm Hezbollah, Uh, but in some cases the weapons remained. In the uh, early years of this activity, we would hear about these strikes that would take place on the tarmac of the airport in Damascus or the occasional one-off strike against uh, an Iranian uh, 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 military leader. Uh, or against some weapon system. These were one-off strikes, according to sources from the region. there have been more than a hundred of them uh, over the last several years. Maybe twice or three times that. No one's actually uh, has an official tally. But within the last six months or so, we have seen a real uptick on the part of the Israelis striking at this infrastructure that is really aimed at them. And what is interesting is that it's often reported as similarly one-off strikes. No one really understands the full context that there is, in fact, a war within the war that's been going on, and that's why we wrote this report.
0: So, Matt, let's, let's go through some of the uh, motivations on the part of the, the key players here. Assad wants to survive in power, wants to continue the dynasty. Is, is there more to it for him than that?
3: Well, Assad will do anything to remain in power, but in order to do so, he's going to be 100% beholden to Iran and Russia there. So you're going to have Russia basically playing kingmaker, and Iran, of course, is entrenching itself down there and so it, down next to Israel. So, what, what really matters from the report's perspective is how the rules of engagement are going to be working. Is Iran going to be staying for the long haul? Uh, will they be able to be removed? Is any form of agreement going to be able to be made uh, with, with Russia? And then, of course, what would Syria look like as far as reconstruction? Is Assad going to retake the whole country? Uh, how is that going to work? How is the United States and international community going to make sure that money isn't siphoned off to Iran or given to the regime to ensure that uh, – the, the country can be uh, reconstituted.
0: In order to survive, he recognized he needed some friends to come in and help him. He turned to Iran. He turned to Hezbollah. He turned to to, to Russia. Uh, talk a little bit. What is Russia? What does Putin want in Syria?
3: Well, Russia, first of all, has a, a base there, a naval base. It's been one of their only outside bases, but they've been able to greatly expand it with an air base. So it, it began... As something that Iran was able to talk them into into getting involved, and that it shouldn't take too long. Back in two thousand and fifteen, those estimates, of course, were wrong. Um, but what Russia mm-hmm. is able to do is to secure its own area, and then to be able to pose a challenge for for the West. And right now, what it's able to do is to try to parlay that into becoming the regional arbiter. Where now Israel has gone, uh, you've had. Netanyahu and Putin meet somewhere around ten times since 2015 in order to work out what the rules of the game are going to be for what Israel can strike inside Syria, and so really he would like to become uh, reconstitute a a Soviet role, so to speak, where uh, where he is able to challenge the United States. And uh, and the West. The
0: power broker of the region, rather the United States. He has, Putin in a a sense, has managed to do that. He has warm water ports. People see him as somebody they now have to go to. If Russia is to be a great power again, and Putin wants to be a great power again, this is part of it. Obama's warned him, this will be a quagmire for you, I know. Putin said, no, you don't understand. I know how to walk in a swamp and not get wet. And so far, Putin seems to be the one who's correct on this. Now... Let's talk a little bit, John, about Iran and its motivation. It's not simply to think so. Bashar al-Assad is a wonderful guy. We want him to stay in power. How terrible these revolutionaries are to try to overthrow him. They have their, des- their grand design as well. And I think it's also fair to say, it's like with Russia, it's an imperial design. It's about being a great power and a hegemon uh, in the region.
2: Yeah, I, look, I think uh, it's first important to note that uh, Syria was always seen as a uh Almost an extra appendage uh, as far as uh Iran was concerned, that it was an additional providence uh for the Iranians because of the importance uh of using that territory to smuggle weapons to Hezbollah uh to be able to keep Lebanon a war zone uh and to maintain that threat against Israel. Mm-hmm. Uh then on top of that, I think we have um a I think a broader design that has to be discussed here, and that is that Iran has hegemonic design on the entire region. And as uh, Iran has grown stronger through the Iran nuclear deal, uh, uh, the money that it received, uh, which it's now been able to spend on its proxies across the region, uh, with the potential of even getting a nuclear weapon, the ability that it has uh, continually to uh, provoke unrest uh, around the region among its Sunni neighbors, Iran realized that uh, it had the potential to extend itself through Iraq, through Syria, through Lebanon, all the way to the Mediterranean. We call this the Shiite Crescent. This is the design that it has on the region, and Syria is crucial uh, to be able to finish that project. It already has quite a bit of influence inside Iraq. It doesn't need as much of the military command. Uh, It's not a war zone. Inside Syria, it's a very different story.
0: I want to remind people on this that Iraq has three major groups, the the Shia, the Sunni, the Kurds. Kurds are in the north. The uh, the Sunni are more or less in the west. The Shia are probably the the major group. And so you can see how since Iran and its supreme leader believes that he is a supreme leader, not just of Iran, but of all Shia and really of all Muslims, he wants to be influential and expand his Shia crescent, his empire, call it what you want, through uh, Iraq. Um, Syria is a little more troublesome since the Shia population in there is rather small, but that may also change if Iranian imperialism and colonialism goes forward. Then you have Lebanon and Tony, I'm going to ask you about this in Lebanon. You have many populations. You have Christian, you have Druze, you have Shia, you have Sunni but and i think this is not well understood you've written about it i don't think even the current administration understands it properly i'm sure you'd agree the fact of the matter is hezbollah a shia proxy instructed and funded by the iranian regime it's pretty much for all intents and purposes it's running the show in lebanon is it not
1: oh absolutely i mean and and it's and it's more uh, it's more than proxy i think to talk about it as a proxy uh, sort of to to kind of puts it on the same level, let's say as Hamas in 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 Gaza, for instance. That's a proxy for the Iran. So Hezbollah is a lot more than that. Hezbollah is just basically a unit of the Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, right? But that's just made up of of Lebanese guys. But the but the but its uh, its uh, command and control is is Iranian. So um, uh, it's part of command and control structure that's Iranian. So th- they totally uh, control uh, Lebanon now because they're the guys with the guns. And uh, also, they now permeate the the Lebanese state and its institutions and its military and its security services and its borders, uh, border e- uh, po- points of entry, the airport, the naval port, uh, and so on and so forth. They're, and politically, their political alliances also allow them to... Uh, uh, to uh, basically now have a majority in parliament because of the last elections that took place earlier in the spring. Uh, so, from top to bottom, basically, on the, on the whether through force of arms, through political alliances, or through the ability uh, to control, uh, you know, state apparatuses, they run the country uh, c- completely and determine its foreign and security policies, specifically as it relates to uh, number one, Israel, and and number two, Syria.
0: John, you wanted to weigh in on this.
1: Yeah,
2: and, and I think, you know, uh, I think Tony's just painted uh, a, an excellent picture. I think w- what's important to understand in the context of the report that we just wrote is that uh, as Iran has gained that control, as Hezbollah has gained control over Lebanon, they have amassed uh, a, a, an immense arsenal. Uh, right now, the estimates coming out of Israel is that they have about 150 to perhaps even 180,000 rockets facing south at Israel. Uh, there have been uh, conflicts before. there Certainly, I think on the precipice of another conflict again, but the conflict between Lebanon and Israel, the next one, is going to be incredibly painful. Uh, Israel knows that it cannot defend 180,000 rockets fired south from uh, this Lebanese proxy. And really, I think the lesson that was learned by Iran over time as it helped build up this incredibly powerful proxy is that they need to do that again and again. That they need to surround Israel with that kind of overwhelming firepower, and that is what they are trying to do in syria and this is why Israel continues to strike. They are trying to prevent another Lebanon from being created
0: and let 's just understand this and go to you, Matt on this. You have Iran the regime in Iran essentially thinking okay we've done our job we've we've saved Assad but that's not the only thing we want to do. We want to make sure Assad, Syria is our client. We want to make sure we have this empire growing. Having this empire, Iran, Iraq, Syria, uh, Lebanon, perhaps Gaza, perhaps Yemen, perhaps eventually going to Afghanistan, that might be seen as enough. But it's perhaps not enough because what John is describing, what the report is describing, and I want to be clear on this, is essentially Iran pre-positioning military capabilities on yet another front for Israel. And it would appear, if they're allowed to, they are preparing for a war against Israel. And that war would not be over one stretch of territory, would not be over Gaza, would not be over the West Bank. This would be a war like the War of 1948, like the War of 1967, explicitly, both of these were, Wars intended to exterminate Israel, to wipe Israel off the map, is—is is it your thinking that that is what Iran is hoping to do right now?
3: First of all, yes, I agree. This is what its nuclear program is all about, which is its its prize. Since December two thousand sixteen, when Aleppo fell, the civil war aspect <clears throat> had been decided in Syria. In favor of the regime. So when you see, for instance, that Israel has attacked uh, the T4 base deep inside Syria and has taken out um, <clears throat> IRGC members uh, where it's launched uh, its drones from and a replica of an S-300 Russian style, very advanced uh, air defense system and the rest of the rockets that it's been bringing in, you can see that these are not designed in order to wage uh, Battle on behalf of Assad to win back territory in Assad, the entire purpose of everything it 's been bringing in uh, is now quite clearly in order to face israel and this has been uh, this has been their
2: plan from the outset what we tried to look at within the context of this report is the fact that Iran is trying to put uh, conventional assets closer and closer to Israel and to surround it with as many of them as possible. And what we're now looking at, it's very interesting. I mean, the the Israelis are more aggressive in trying to take out these assets than we have ever seen. And this is the controlled chaos that we discussed, that they are for every uh, once attempted strike that Iran carries out against Israel, there are seven or 10 or 15 strikes inside Syria, they are not messing around right now. It's not like the tit for tat that we've seen uh, between Israel and Hezbollah in the past or between Israel and Hamas. This is a very aggressive Israel that is trying to prevent the, uh, the borders from closing in on them. And so they're very cognizant of, of their security situation and why they need to do this now. But it is a dangerous balancing act that, that we're currently watching.
0: And Tony, do you have the sense that the Israelis know what they're up against and have decided what to do about it, or are they still debating how to handle this problem?
1: No, I think they understand the strategic picture very clearly, um, that uh, they now if, effectively, if, if the Iranians are allowed to consolidate in Syria, then they will have now uh, three fronts where the Iranians have missile bases aimed at Israel. And, uh, okay, so the Israel, you know, you, you mentioned the Khomeini quote of Israel is a small country. I mean, so three uh, active fronts where you can lob uh, mid-to-long-range rockets that can target all uh, Israel's economic infrastructure and its civilian neighborhoods, uh, this is a strategic nightmare, right? So the Israelis are not going to allow for that to, to take place. The question uh, that we grapple with in the, in the report is do you go all the way or do you try to kind of uh, sort of prevent uh, a major escalation from taking place through these strikes by trying to convince the Russians, let's say, or even the Iranians that, that the sustainability of their presence in Syria uh, w- relative to the Israeli strikes is, is not something that they want to consider. Uh, I, my own personal uh, Conclusion on this is that the Israelis have to maintain that posture of being ready and willing at, uh, to take this uh, into a full-blown conflict because that right now is their ultimate leverage. If the, uh, th- th- There is a possibility that the Iranians may be able to absorb uh, sort of uh, limited strikes over a long period of time. And at the end of that rope, there'll be basically a, a, an Iranian presence in Syria. So that's really the, the major dilemma for Israel now, and whether they, they are willing to take it all the way or not. And this, by the way, is why we're seeing things happening in Gaza as well, because uh, the Iranians want to open multiple fronts to kind of get the Isra- to deter the Israelis from taking decisive action on either one. So that's really the question that's, that's, uh, that the Israelis are going to have to answer at some point, whether uh, when or whether they need to take it all the way or not.
0: What does all the way mean, John? Oh, I mean, all the way
2: means uh, an all out war in, uh, in Syria. Uh, against Iran and, and its many proxies. It also uh, potentially could include uh, a new front in Lebanon if uh, Iran decides to unleash Hezbollah's assets. It could be alongside rockets coming out of Gaza. And, and then, of course, there is the question of whether Israel uh, chooses to strike inside of Iran itself, uh, which it's never done. Uh, it's always fought against Iran's proxies as such.
0: Does Israel have the ability to, to simply find out each time that the uh, Iranians begin to put down a military base and destroy them and kind of do it kind of on a -a whack-a-mole basis, a mow-the-lawn basis. We're simply not going to let the Iranians have capabilities in Syria that threaten us. We will destroy them until they get tired of building them. Is that a possibility?
2: This is effectively what's happening, uh, that what Israel does is it harvests targeting information over a period of time. And it's been doing that for for months, years, in fact, watching what's happening on the other side of the border. Uh, and then there came a time, it was actually February with the drone incursion uh, that came in through uh, first Jordan and then into Israeli territory. And the Israelis decided to unleash and took out many targets. And what we've seen since then is they continue to draw on those banks of targets that they have been collecting over time. And they're knocking out large Groups of targets, rather than the one tit-for-tat type responses that we've seen in the past between, you know, Israel and Hezbollah, for example. But what's interesting now is that as this is going on, as Israel continues to strike these targets, uh, with, uh, I mean, with I don't want to say uh, reckless abandon, but certainly with abandon. I mean, it has, uh, it's, it's not as guarded as it once was about these strikes. There are two things that I think. They are thinking about one is that striking these targets now paradoxically as it puts itself almost to the brink of war with Iran and Syria, this is actually preventing a war in the future that you have to do this now or it becomes a problem that you will have to deal with later and they don't want to do that. So they take the risk now to take out these these assets. The other thing is, is that the more chaos that's created from this the more of a liability Russia realizes that Iran is. And the hope anyway, coming out of Tel Aviv, coming out of the Kyriah, their their Pentagon, is that if Israel makes it look too messy for Putin, that if uh, things keep blowing up and Putin doesn't have the ability to control it, that perhaps Israel can convince the Russian leader to tell Iran to get out. Whether that happens, I think it's a bit of a bank shot, but it's an interesting thing to watch as Israel plays for that eventuality.
0: Tony, if if, if that were to happen, if if, the, if Putin were to say to the Iranians, you really do have to leave now, sorry about that, the door's that way, will the Iranians necessarily say yes, or do they say, you can't tell us what to do?
1: Well, they've already... Said that you can't tell us what to do, but what's interesting is that the Russians haven't said that the Iranians should leave either. The Russians' position has been that their position in Syria is perfectly legitimate. It's at the request of the legitimate Syrian government, and the only person who's uh, who has the authority to ask the Iranians to do anything is Bashar al-Assad. So they, but that reflects, on the one hand, their realization that they actually need the Iranians in Syria to continue to stay. Stabilization of the Assad regime on the one hand, and on the other hand, it reflects their, you know, it's their very limited ability to actually do something. As what are they going to do? Go to war against Iranian militias in Syria? It's unclear how that's how that's going to play out. Um, well, two things.
0: let me just let me just push you on this. One is that the Russians say, look, you're. We th- we think there are things you can do in, in, in Syria, and there are things you can't do, and eventually you have to be able to leave, and you're certainly not going to get any backing militarily from us, so we're going to leave you to the tender mercies of the Israelis, which some may say is what's going on anyhow at this moment. Um, and the Iranians might be more vulnerable in that circumstance if Putin were to, say, were to say that. Let me let you comment on that, then I'll ask you another question
1: uh sure but uh your point uh, to your point this is this is a uh, something that's worth that's worth actually explaining the russians have not expanded uh, extended a protective umbrella to the iranians in syria at all actually so uh, one point to follow up on uh, jonathan's earlier point the russians have uh, uh rather the israelis have expanded the reach of their strikes in in Syria against the Iranians. So uh, one of the things that we learned uh, earlier in the last uh, couple of days was that uh, through a leak uh, in a Kuwaiti newspaper that often carries leak, leaks from the Israelis, we don't know if this is for real or not, it could just be uh, psychological warfare, but it, uh, the leak claims that the Israelis are now going to start um, uh, targeting Iranian nodes of uh, weapons transfers and logistical uh, routes, uh, not just in Syria, but on and not just on the Syrian-Iraqi border, which is which is a, a place that they've hit in recent days, but also potentially on the Iraqi-Iranian border as well. So this is kind of the logical extension of uh, of, uh, of the Israeli strikes against the Iranian. Uh, military entrenchment in Syria, and all the various uh, points of transfer that lead lead to it in Syria. Uh, Bottom line, I think, uh, and I wrote this in one of my recent articles in in Tablet Magazine, I think that Russia doesn't actually care all that much if Israel takes out Iranian installations in Syria. Uh, I think they can tolerate that perfectly fine. Uh, on, on two conditions. One, that the Israelis do not hit Russian systems or personnel. And number two, that they don't jeopardize the Assad regime's survivability and therefore uh, Russia's enterprise in Syria. Uh, and that 's why they 've been asking the Israelis or uh, in their offers so called that they 're trying to make to the Israelis about uh, about uh, how to deal with the situation in Syria. they have uh, told the Israelis that they would like them to stop hitting regime targets uh, and and part of the stuff that they 've been floating also which was, which is something we saw at the Helsinki summit uh, with President Trump, is that they have um, they 're trying to kind of enlist not just Israel, all of Syria's neighbors, but certainly Israel as well, to help legitimize and rehabilitate the Assad regime.
0: Matt, see if you have a guess as to answer to this question. If Assad were to say to the Iranians, I really, I'm really grateful for all your help, but now it's time for you to leave. I think I can handle this myself, or just a residual force is all I want. Do the Iranians say, are you kidding or do they say or does assad have the power to ask the iranians to leave at this point is it where are we with that
3: assad has really no power i mean i've seen estimates it would take uh 10 years for him to reconstitute anything workable as uh, as his own army he's fully dependent on iranian forces in order to remain in power even what's left around could probably rise up against him without iran uh taking care of it taking care of him but in the meantime uh Iran is there.
0: Go ahead. So John, this brings <laughs> us to another, but let's, uh, here's another point of Israeli strategy. When Prime Minister Netanyahu is talking to Vladimir Putin, a lot of things they can talk about. One thing is he can, they, he can say, look, there is a card we don't want to play, but we could. And that card would be, we can wipe out Assad. You know, we can. Now you could go to war with us. We don't want to go to war with you. I don't think you want to go to war with us. I don't think that's in your interest or ours. Your interest is to be a power player in this region and to remain in Syria and have your bases there. And we have no quarrel with you on that. We can leave Assad in power. What we can't do is leave the Iranians. So if we have to decide what our targets are, our targets may be the Iranian military facilities in Syria. Our targets could be all the way in Iran. We may figure out a way to do that. Or our target could be Assad. That would certainly reshuffle the deck in a, in, in a way that you don't want and we don't want, so we need your assurance. Is that a possibility?
2: Well, it, it's more than a possibility. It's it's actually reflective of reality to a certain extent. The Israelis have actually issued direct warnings to Assad saying that if there are more incursions that come out of your territory, we are going to target you and your regime. Uh, And of course, that is a message just as much for the Russians uh, as it was to Assad himself. Um, And, uh, you know, I think uh, you have a sense that that chastened uh, Assad to a certain extent. I think, though, the real question has to be whether the Iranians are, uh, w- whether we can convince them, whether uh, uh, whether uh, Putin can convince them uh, to leave. And on that point, it's it's very interesting because on the one hand, you know, you're looking at a, a fiercely uh, revolutionary and independent country that doesn't want to leave uh, this territory that it's fought for and and that it sees as as strategic. On the other hand, if you have an Iranian regime that crosses the Russians and somehow pushes them into the arms of the Trump administration, and they find common cause in their frustration with the Iranians. That is a risk that I believe Tehran is probably not willing to take. So they have a very interesting gambit ahead of them.
0: So this brings us for our last five or six minutes to the, a subject that you deal with in your report and that, we, that, I've, that I've left purposefully to the end. What? cards does the U.S. decide to play? What is U.S. policy? What are U.S. policy options at this point? What's in the U.S. national interest? Now, the fact that the U.S. is putting increasing sanction pressure, increasing economic pressure, not giving billions to the Iranians, taking billions away from the Iranians, that makes it harder for them to run uh, this, this big empire and keep doing what they're doing, keep building up their capabilities. It also helps that right now the U.S. does have troops in Syria, not a lot of them. A, let's talk, you start, Matt, about what the policy options are that you think that the, the Trump administration is considering. And if there are arguments within the Trump administration over this, what do you think they are?
3: I think there are divides where the, uh, the president has said, and even took, uh, his military commanders by surprise going back to March and perhaps even beforehand that he would like to pull out, uh, American troops, uh, as soon as possible. And, uh, his focus has been on defeating Isis which is you know in the eastern section of the country primarily um and then you have those in the National Security Council and now in the State Department uh, that seem to understand that the the role that American troops play is uh, is very big when you look in the in the northeast section where the United States currently is and again we're only talking about two thousand twenty five hundred uh American troops on the ground there um if the U.S. pulls out of the Northeast, then you have the Kurds turn to make a deal uh, with with Assad, and essentially it, it will it will make what the United States has done in the in the wars to basically just uh, do the work for Iran and Assad for them. Basically, if we pull out in, in and uh the military small military garrison that we keep in the in the south, that is really along the most. Uh, Often used major throughway, the land corridor that Iran is running through uh, to Lebanon. And so our position there uh, really is a roadblock for Iran and is very important. And again, these aren't huge troop commitments, but it also makes a, a major impact when we're talking about creating a, an Arab coalition, perhaps that would work with us, having our own skin in the game. Uh, is something that we need to be able to convince others to go in with us. So I think there's a lot that we do
0: by having a little there. And Tony, uh, my guess is that within the, that, that there's no question Trump would love to bring these troops out of Syria, but that he is hearing certainly from National Security Advisor Bolton, from Secretary of State Pompeo, and perhaps from Defense Secretary Mattis. Look, if your policy is to, destabilize the regime in Iran to to make it very difficult for them to, to continue doing what they're doing have a nuclear weapons program be the, the be try to become the hegemon of the Middle East you you can't leave you can't leave you'd be giving them a huge gift by the way inclu- uh, included in that gift gas and oil which right now America uh, Syrian gas and oil which right now America controls it doesn't go to Iran it doesn't go to Syria you agree with that tony
1: i do still don't have a clear uh, policy uh, with regard to uh, not just you know sanctions, uh, you know, and which is which is which is great, but sort of how do you intend to deal with uh, Iran's assets in the region? Does the United States intend to take a role uh, to, to to take action against them? Does it intend to do so directly, or does it intend to do so through its allies and uh, and local uh, assets? Or does it not intend to do so? Because all of those questions then have direct bearing on the U.S. presence in 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 Syria. Um, if if we are there simply to uh, fight ISIS and not do anything and kind of stand out, uh, uh, you know, by the wayside as as uh, as the Iranians and Assad do what they need to do, and then all of a sudden, our Kurdish uh, friends in in Syria cut their deal, as Matt said, with, with the regime, then, uh, then w- what, is, what exactly are we standing on in, in, in Syria and, and, and to, do, to achieve what? I think that needs to be clarified by the administration, to be sure. But then also, I think the United States uh, needs to take a position uh, and an and action, let's say, in support of Israel as it's doing a lot of the heavy lifting against Iran's assets in, in Syria specifically. Uh, also, to, to that posture that the United States then takes um, uh, would uh, would uh, help Israel create a margin of maneuver uh, with the Russians. Okay, so that they don't have to deal with the Russians all on their own. That we kind of take care of that, uh, so that they don't have to worry about it. Uh, and lastly, I think you cannot do a, a comprehensive. Uh, anti-Iran policy in the region while pumping money into Iranian assets and clients in Lebanon, for instance, okay, and helping them secure their border so that they can run back and forth their weapons through Lebanon and their personnel and militias through Lebanon. And the same to a certain extent also applies in Iraq. So we have to sort of uh, make our policy much more comprehensive and our strategy much more comprehensive to to include uh, Iran's assets in Lebanon and Iraq,
0: uh, as well. John, why don't you wrap up by talking about what you would be advising, what you are, what you are advising the administration at this point uh, to be a coherent policy in the American interest uh, in, this, in Syria and, and, and this entire region. Sure. Well, um, you know, as we note in our
2: report, uh, you know, we think that leaving the Al Tanf base is is a huge mistake. This is the U.S. presence that we have. It's really it's a small footprint, but it is uh, a hindrance. The
0: Uh, Iraqi border
2: uh, on the in the southern part of Syria. Um, and what it does is it, it really does prevent the completion of that land bridge. And we think that, that preventing that land bridge is incredibly important for now until we can hopefully formulate a, uh, a more coherent uh, Syria policy. We know that there is obviously significant debate, but, but keeping that U.S. presence there, I think, is significant. Uh, from there, I think it's really incredibly important that we see that full-on financial pressure campaign uh, that, of course, is now going to come into play. Uh, on November 4th with the reimposition of U.S. sanctions against Iran. But it also, I mean, we need to be punishing Iran in Iran, uh, its financial base there, but we ought to be looking as well at how to put that kind of same financial pressure on Iranian assets inside Syria against the Assad regime, uh, perhaps even against Russia to a certain extent, uh, given what it's doing. Uh, we need to take a look at those Shiite militias that are operating throughout the uh, the Shiite Crescent. Uh, many of them are not designated. They're not sanctioned by the U.S. government. They're not known to our foreign policymakers. And uh, and there are a couple of dozen of them that I think we can put in the American crosshairs. There's one other interesting thing, and Tony mentioned giving Israel the support that it needs. That That's probably through materiel, it's through financial support, through political support, diplomatic support. There's one thing that we're hearing coming out of Israel right now, which is an interesting argument, and that is the Israelis are saying it's time to recognize the sovereignty of the Golan Heights, that the U.S. should be recognizing that now, understanding... The
0: sovereignty on the Golan Heights, which, which was taken from Syria in a defensive war back in 1967.
2: That's right. And so the idea of 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 ceding this to Assad, who is by all accounts a war criminal, who's assisting Iran, and if they had that that uh, that perch uh, right on Israel's border. The effect could be devastating. Uh, Israel had almost, or had at least considered, giving this territory to uh, to Assad in exchange for a peace deal. It uh, to think about what that might look like now is horrific for many Israelis, and so they're making the case that not only is it important for them to have this territory, but also think about what it would look like if if you don't recognize this as Israeli, that you're almost rewarding Assad for staying in power and for murdering a half million Syrians. So that's another interesting idea coming out of. Uh, 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 coming out of Israel, but the bottom line is we need to be start, we need to start thinking holistically about how to punish Iran, how to isolate Syria, how to empower the Israelis to ensure that they wipe out this threat. Uh, we believe that this conflict is one that is likely to escalate further for the foreseeable future, uh, and it will require, I think, some deft uh, American fo- uh, foreign policy making.
0: It's a complex situation, uh, likely to escalate. That's distressing, but certainly peace is not at hand. Uh, thank you, Tony Bedron. Thank you, Matt Brodsky. Thank you, John Shanzer, uh, for being with us today. And thank you, everybody, for listening. This is Foreign Policy. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Foreign Policy. As always, find and subscribe to our show on iTunes, Google Play, or Stitcher. If you like this week's episode and have feedback for us, please leave us a review on iTunes. We'd appreciate your thoughts and your criticisms, too. We hope you'll join us again in the future, but until then, I'm Cliff May, and you've been listening to Foreign Policy.